this is Maddie and Teresa. Welcome back to our mini podcast, The Undoing of Art History, where we've launched an inquiry into the inclusivity of art history and whether there can be something like a comprehensive, universal big art history. In our first episode, we've discussed the topic of narrative and how every art history has one, consciously or not. We introduced you to E. H. Gombrich's vastly popular but famously Eurocentric story of art, as well as James Elkins's criticism of it. And we've talked about how Linda Notchlin's essay, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists, has called out the entire discipline of art history for assuming its Western white male gaze was unchallengeable objectivity. We've talked a lot about one-sided narratives and Eurocentricism, but to quote Gombrich, we must at least cast a glance at what happened in other parts of the world during these centuries of turmoil. He is referring to the time between the 2nd and the 13th century. That's quite a vast time span to cast a glance at, at the entirety of the world minus Europe. And a great illustration of the problematic disregard for non-Western cultures prevailed in art history that we are trying to challenge and revise in this podcast. In this episode, we will explore the subjects that traditional art history surveys tend to misinterpret, neglect, or omit completely from their story of art. The literature we chose for this episode comes with distinct methods of analysis and different pieces point towards different ways of approaching our artistic past. In section one, we'll talk about applying a region-specific focus and categorization and the assets and limitations of studying a place and period in his own terms. Ernest Fenelosa's Epochs of Chinese and Japanese Art and Sayed Hossein Nasser's Islamic Art and Spirituality will be the basis for this bit. And in section two, we will center more on communalities, hybridity and mutual influence and the value of uniting vaster areas or periods of time into one narrative. For this, we're using Frank Willett's African Art, Volume 2, from 1971, and an article by Carol Damien called The Virgin of the Andes, Inca Queen and Christian Goddess, from the edited book Women and Art in Early Modern Latin America. So, as mentioned earlier, the first book introduced in Section 1 will be The Epochs of Chinese and Japanese Art, an outline history of East Asiatic design, by Ernest Fenelosa. Originally published in 1912 under a publishing house in both Bath and New York, this new edition, which is being used in this episode, was published in 2007 in both the US and Japan. Fenelosa was an American art historian from 1853 to 1908 who focused on Japanese art. He was also a professor of philosophy and political economics at Tokyo Imperial University. He is well known for his efforts to preserve traditional Japanese art whilst having lived there from 1878 to 1900. The introduction of the book outlines the aims and hopeful achievements that Fenelosa wishes to achieve by curating the book. These are as follow. The purpose of this book is to contribute first-hand material towards a real history of East Asiatic art, yet in an interesting way that may appeal to not only art scholars but to art collectors general readers on oriental topics and travellers in Asia. The book hopes to break down the idea of grouping together all Asian artwork into categories of media when surveying them. Instead, it categorises each time period within Chinese and Japanese history and assesses the pieces of work in reference to their time period in an attempt to avoid providing false classification by material instead of by creative periods. So from that summary, we've developed a series of discussion points. 
The first one is that the book prides itself on attempting to paint the picture of Chinese and Japanese artwork through a traditional lens in order to tell the story of the artwork. Whilst this is a good thing, as it doesn't utilize the Eurocentric lens we've been talking about so far, the book still uses old Japanese pronunciations of old Chinese names, as opposed to the updated Mandarin names. In his revisions, Petrucci points out that there is no merit in using old names and that they should be changed, but still, they remain the same. So Maddie will elaborate on why that is. So just some examples of this is that a lot of Chinese surnames are similar. In China, there's a... traditional Chinese, there's only a set certain amount of surnames that you can have. And one of these is Yuan. And um, the traditional name for this was Yuan. In all books that have been revised in Chinese history, they will have changed this to adapt to the post-cultural revolution Chinese Mandarin that was adapted by Mao Zedong. And so in his book where he uses Yuan, Yuan, he should have used Yuan. And when he uses Tang, he should have used Tang. And these just represent the movement of China from its old period into its new modernization period. So with the book being revised in 2007, you would expect that it would make these changes along with it just for a proof of respect to the culture and also just for clarification for the reader. Moving on to our next discussion topic, which we found from this book, is that the revisions are made from Petrucci, who is of European descent. So should the 2007 edition have taken on a more diverse crew when rewriting it, seeing as the world is a much more globalised and unified international place now? I think this is an interesting moment to come back to what we discussed in episode one, namely what Linda Notchlin has wrote about the power dynamics in academia and art history. It's really about who we involve in decision-making processes surrounding art, right? Because it's if we come back to Nochlin, it is a question of power and it's a question of power structures and who is endowed with a certain power to make editorial decisions, publishing decisions, etc. And the I think the moment where you get to um, restructure your editorial board for a revision of a work such as Phenolosis you need to have, on the one hand, the awareness that you need a diverse board to have maybe the most um, representative and innovative revision. But what it takes even more than that is the will and the dedication to do that. And if that's not there, then there's no way of changing um, existing power structures. So I think that's maybe slightly disappointing about the revision if you look at it in terms of who did it. Um, And again, the point of diverse editorial boards is not the formality behind it and the political correctness. It is the perspectives that we can gain through it. And again, it's all about breaking up old narratives and finding new perspectives to work into these narratives, as we've discussed last time. Another thing to add on top of that is if we look at Gombrich's book, which was revised in pictures but not text, this book is the reverse. It was revised in text more so than in pictures. Whilst, yes, there was some revisions made in the pictures, it is very much similar to the original issue. So we see kind of very half-hearted efforts of genuinely changing anything about these books, really, right? Because it's you either stick to the text or you stick to the pictures, but none of these um, revisions seem like there was a more profound effort of reworking the narrative itself. Yeah. And there's a very big lack to bring it into the modern world in which a history book should do. They should be updated. History is ongoing. Right. So if something changes and or awareness is brought to something in this case with the names, for example, um, 
it should just always be changing to adapt to the, the new modern version of something. So Fenelos's book can be considered a reasonably successful attempt to evade Western lenses and classifications for the narration of a regional history of art. But as discussed, the question of authorship remains. So who has the authority in writing about the epochs of Chinese and Japanese art in its own terms? And who can really work without Western-oriented lenses? We will complement our inquiry into region-specific analysis with another, even more inward-looking study of art, namely on that of Islamic art. So I found this part in a chapter from an, a textbook on Islamic art written by Titus Burkhardt. It's titled Variety and Unity, and I thought it was a great opening into our discussion on Islamic art. He writes that Islamic art embraces a whole range of styles, each of which is clearly distinguishable and corresponds to a specific ethnic environment, although no specific style could be described as being more or less Islamic than any other. This is an example of the phenomenon of diversity and unity or of unity and diversity and proves indirectly that Islam is not a synthesis invented by men. But it's interesting because the historical relations of Islamic art and Western art history show very little understanding for any complexity like this. And I mean, this applies to all currents and all uh, periods and spaces that we're describing here in this episode. But um, if we speak about Islamic art, it can be said that major forms of this art, such as calligraphy or traditional ornaments for a long time, were regarded as just mere decoration or minor arts that weren't worth the same attention as the achievements of the West. I guess that also comes with the idea that it manifests that your centricism comes with a tendency to overlook and misunderstand and also minimize non-Western art history which is kind of an indicator as to why this inward-looking study of art could hold a lot more potential above others. Precisely. So if we're going into Islamic art and spirituality, the textbook that we're covering today, um, it's by Sayyid Hossein Nasser and was published in 1987. And Nasser is an Islamic philosopher and teaches Islamic studies at George Washington University. It's um, interesting because Islamic art and spirituality was actually among the few books that were actually written by Middle Eastern authors on Islamic art that we were able to find. And this, again, goes back to the debate on authorship that we had earlier on authorship and diversity. It was just very hard to find anything that was not written by a Western or Western educated scholar. The guiding question in Nasser's work is what are the unifying principles of Islamic art and what are their origins? And he locates the origins of Islamic art in Islamic spirituality, so in the inner dimensions of Islam. According to Nasser, Islamic art does not imitate the outward forms of nature, but it reflects their inner principles, which is quite an interesting approach to take. Yeah. It is. I mean, if we look at it in terms of referring it back to Gombrich, we can see it as a fundamentally different approach, as in his brief section, which is only a page long, on Islamic art, he reduces it to Muslim iconoclasm and whether or not religious symbols were allowed to be depicted. He smoothly moves on to the second eastern other China and does not return to either throughout the rest of his book. Yeah, so we see a fundamental discrepancy in how these two authors approach um, Islamic art. 
which is kind of bolstering the relevance of really covering such topics in their own terms in a way. It's also interesting to see Nasser's position on the principles of Western art and civilization. He considers them generally too rigid uh, in their understanding. This actually resonates with different points that Elkins, James Elkins, has raised in his book Stories of Art that we covered in the last episode, namely that it's important to sometimes evade categorizations and periodization of Western art when we talk about non-Western cultures, because um, categories that um, spring from Western art can easily obscure complexities in non-Western art. Nasser counters this claim by saying that the answer must be sought in the Islamic religion itself. And for example, he rejects the Western dichotomy between the sacred and the secular, because in his understanding, they're complementary rather than mutually exclusive. So he argues that Islamic intellectuality and spirituality are inseparable and th that this is central to Islamic art. What we take from Nasser's work in general is that refraining from using Western description and frameworks or means of assessment forces us to consider new paradigms and new conditions and meanings for the production of art for our own evaluations. So just moving into some criticisms that we could have on Nasser's book is that the book focuses primarily on Persian Islamic art due to the author's cultural background and he makes no major reflections or whether this has limitation in his analysis. It's also very maybe, maybe overly elaborate in his writing and his selection of vocabulary. And Islamic art and spirituality assumes an advanced understanding from its readership. And it doesn't really have the same level as ex of accessibility as many other works that we've discussed thus far in the podcast, which stands in a stark contrast to Gombrich's, which was a very easy open playing level for everyone to get into art history. So what then are the upsides of this approach? What are the upsides of studying a subject in its own terms, somehow almost isolated from other currents and cultures? And what are the downsides and limitations of it? So as we've just discussed uh, with regard to Nasser, it's a bit difficult because he definitely asks for more specific knowledge and familiarity when he discusses his points. So you would kind of need a compensation for such um, like gaps of knowledge that we have through explanations of the fundamentals in some work that's either complementary or um, included in, um, in these studies. So for example, I found it quite hard to really understand Nasser's claim of the inwardness and spirituality in Islamic art, which of course, lies in the fact that I have very little knowledge about this. Um, but yeah, it remained a bit of a mystery and he was not very clear about um, the parameters he was using or describing here. And what's also important to note is that if we keep completely isolating cultures and uh, these contexts, there is a significant loss of explanatory power because we are ignoring cross-cultural influences and we're not taking into account how cultures interact. So it's really important to, even when we isolate these kind of areas of art history, that we do not forget about the context that locates them in history. I think theoretically it should allow for more in-depth analysis and study of a culture. However, this is not really fully achieved by anyone. As we can see with Nassau, with his very specific chosen vocabulary and his need for people to have a better understanding before they read it. And with Finosa, what he really missed was that touch that is added by someone, whether that be an editor or an author, 
or just anyone who is from the culture who really truly understands it and isn't from an outside perspective which I guess refers back to that question of authorship which will always remain important as for any format that occurs it's always important to know who it's by what their relationship is to the piece and it doesn't really matter if it's big art history or that specific piece it will always remain important but there are obviously upsides to this side of it and comparative studies do work they tend to compare non-western civilizations or non-western cultures to the west and this is where the west is always used as like the standard measurement if we take Fenosa's piece that is a comparison between two similar cultures who share a large amount of history, thus making the comparison justified, it does work. But there needs to be this built up understanding of each culture individually so they can know those nuances and what makes them so different now in this modern day before we can develop an understanding of them acting together and in similarities. So building on that, especially when we talk about typically omitted non-Western cultures that have resulted in just a huge gap of knowledge, these in-depth studies can really help us restore this knowledge that is usually just forgotten or overlooked or not deemed important enough. And as Maddie already hinted, we need to have a kind of equally far-reaching understanding of both of the parties that we're comparing. So you need to know as much about the traditions and history of culture A as you do about culture B. And then that's kind of the basis for a legitimate comparison rather than always taking whatever small interesting bits you know about culture B and always comparing it to um, this big chunk of Western culture A that's got this authority and that's got this, um, that is the standard of measurement as we said earlier. So had we structured our podcast following E.H. Gombrich's story of art, we would probably have to end it here. There's no mention whatsoever of African art in his survey. Egypt is included in the context of ancient civilizations alongside Mesopotamia and Crete at the very beginning. After that, the entire continent basically ceases to exist. In debate, this is often justified by the prevalence of oral history in Africa as a, as a means of documentation. This omission is often justified in debate by the prevalence of oral history in areas like Africa <laughs> as a whole continent. But the question really is, is the difference in the availability and documentation of history or written history and art history a justification for such an omission? Well, I think it's true that, yes, in Africa, there is a lot more oral history recorded rather than written history, which makes a very big difference and um, visual evidence as well. But there is enough information out there with oral history in recent years being written down by a lot more families and um, cultures recording it more in more accessible formats it definitely exists so there are really no excuses as to avoiding a whole continent for that reason and also even if it isn't all history with the globalization of the world you can meet so many people and talk to them and interview and there are so many ways to access this information that just seems to be neglected by so many people and if anything, it's an argument for art history just to become more an exclusive, in, more ex inclusive in its sources and allow these interviews, etc., and not just textbooks and things to be used in order to form formalize this art history idea. Yeah, 
I totally agree with everything you said. And another quick disclaimer here is that in this episode, we really broke down the omissions of um, non-West, well, of Eurocentric art history into continents. So we created these really big, chunky units that are a bit hard to handle because they are really like vast units of measurements that we're using here. So um, yeah, we also see that there is a limitation to talking about African art as African art because it is such a huge continent and it's hard to um, talk about it in one big unit like this but this is how we had to oh, this is how we chose to plan it for this episode for simplicity reasons this time so moving on to african art african art was written by frank willett and he has been described as the leading one of the leading africanists of his generation which was in his obituary born in 1925 he went on to become the first director on of the hunter hunterian museum and art gallery from the 70s to the 90s and then he later became a professor in the museum after living in Nigeria during the 50s. African art utilizes Willett's vast understanding of African people such as the Fang and the Bakota people. It's important that this vast understanding of African people comes from his readings and not from meeting them or experience first-hand living or being from that culture. In the book he lays out how these peoples are aesthetic went on to impact 20th century Western art with the likes of Picasso. The study is often selected as a resource for students due to its outlining of warrior and power of art that is found in the continent. In the preface of the book, Willa outlined that his desire to create the study was based on his growing dissatisfaction with the available books that he had access to whilst teaching as a professor across America and in the UK in the 1960s. Opposed to focusing distinctively on individual pieces of work, Willett f- wished to focus on the principles of the study of African arts, such as his introduction, which focuses on introducing Africa on a whole, which in he breaks down different cultures and different language that, languages that are used throughout the continent. So to discuss this work a little bit, um, Willett uses a different classification to a lot of the other authors that we've discussed because he groups um, items together rather than going through time periods chronologically. Is this any more helpful to understanding, for example, uh, more than Fenelos's grouping by time period exclusively? What do you think? I think that it's, I think Fenelos's approach is definitely better. With Willett's approach, you kind of whip it out of the political context because you jump from an say a sculpture that was created in 1852 to another sculpture that was created in 1901 there's no story being told by the objects as you move through the period of time however opposed to Fenelosa he is also attempting to survey an entire continent within one book and how can we really assess the authority of a book which is attempting to cover so much and was written by a westerner as well who only perspective of this of Africa as a continent is from his experiences that he had whilst living in Nigeria, which is one of many countries. This is sort of seen without the book as there is massive areas of Africa that are just completely neglected and overlooked. And perhaps he should have broken it down into, say, the West Coast, the North and the South into multiple volumes, rather than just trying to create one book that goes over a continent that is so vast in culture and traditions and language and people. 
And that way he would have been able to assess similar cultures against one another rather than assessing cultures that are so far removed from one another, one another due to the vast scope of the continent. So adding on to that last point that I just made about its all-encompassing one-continent book idea, should it act as a stepping stone as opposed to a final step? I definitely agree with you there. Yeah, it's um, like such such vast stories do have a great potential for contextualization, and they can sort of be the glue that keeps a number of art histories together and uh, establishes context that just relates them to one another. But the downsides, like you said, are just the obfuscation of detail and nuance when we talk about art in such a vast scale. So as we enlarge in our lens, it becomes um, easier and easier to overlook local political contexts that determine things like the standards of art, the conditions of art production, but also techniques, style, symbolisms, etc. So there's definitely a downside to these um, big approaches. But again, what we do have to mention is that um, with this big narrative also uh, comes a notion of continuity and a notion of cross-cultural influence. And this can also illuminate certain aspects of art. For example, how it interacts across time and space. And um, these are exactly the things that are usually overlooked uh, in case studies and in in-depth studies of specific periods and specific spaces. And that's also kind of what we criticized earlier about Fenelosa and Nasser is that these in-depth studies on Islamic and Asian art can sometimes, um, while they do provide us with more in-depth knowledge about a specific subject, they can obscure vaster contexts. Yeah. So just in speaking about cross-cultural interaction, something that we noticed was that, will it, mentions this exchange in terms of African art influencing the likes of Picasso and I know we're not art history students but even as history students it's shocking to me and to you that we've never really been taught this and we're very rarely taught about cross-cultural exchange between Africa and the West from that perspective of, of Africa influencing the West and it's just mind-boggling to me that this is something that's so rarely discussed. It's something that you assume did happen and you kind of know did happen because that's how exchange works. But it's just almost bamboozling that we were never taught these specific pieces. So in a study of South American art, we managed to discern more information about the dynamics that lie behind cross-cultural exchange like this. So South American art actually turned out to be quite the telling area to study because research on it often centers on colonial periods and European influences. And this has traditionally resulted in the perception of South American art history as only just starting with the colonial period and being defined and advanced only by colonial forces. And this has obviously obscured artistic traditions and practices of indigenous cultures and how they've persisted throughout the colonial period and beyond. So for this bit, we're going to look at an article called The Virgin of the Andes, Inca Queen and Christian Goddess, which was written by Carol Damien in 2006. It's a book chapter of women and art in early modern Latin America. And Damien centers on the interplay of the European colonial grip and the persistence and adaptation of native traditions in a kind of case study on Christian and Inca symbolism. Given the specifics of the case study, it does not have quite the same 
wide range explanatory power as a broader survey or analysis, as we've discussed before. But it definitely has the potential to make us understand a period and place of art through a new lens, namely that of mutual influence, so a kind of hybridity of art. This implies that culture flourishes from new influence and inputs. It's never replaced, but it just continually reinvents itself. Some notions like this we've already addressed in episode one with Elkins, for example, but here we're taking it a step further. The hybridity that Damien talks about is illustrated by a study of two images in her article, namely two images that have over time drawn from one another's artistic traditions and symbolisms. On the one hand, she talks about the Christian Virgin Mary, and then she talks about the Inca goddesses, including Pachamama, which is the venerated Earth Mother. She discusses this in context with the Cusco school, which is a Roman Catholic artistic tradition based in Cusco from the 16th to the 18th century. And this has become a widespread tradition throughout the Andes, and it was heavily inspired by indigenous traditions there. But it's important to note, as Damien says, that the exchange went both ways. So the symbolism of the Andes enhanced that of Christianity and vice versa. The results were new levels of symbolism in this combination and mutual influence that reconciled traditions, practices, and symbolisms. So artistic work from the School of Cusco are complicated combinations of a multitude of iconographic themes. And the merging of two artistic influences has produced hybrid symbolisms for the Virgin of the Andes, which is characterized by significant features from both Spanish and European and indigenous traditions. So this makes the Virgin of the Andes a very distinct product of, to quote her, um, of her natural and spiritual environment. So just in response to that, what does this mean for our survey into art history narratives? This basically means that the nature of the Cusco school defies traditional methodology of art history. It's um, usually more based on the chronology of and clear stages of artistic development or perfectly defined styles, but that's really not the case with the Virgin of the Andes. So this symbolism or this combination of symbolisms clearly does not fit into this rigidly structured narrative that we've seen in Gombrich, for example. And like James Elkins, the author of Stories of Art, has demanded such art would require smoother transitions between chronological sections, but also in terms of the classifications of style, of technique, symbolism and social meaning to be reflected fully in its complexity. So the meaning of this is that we can better understand the dynamic between two cultures and how they reinvented themselves as a reaction. So developing on from that, um, looking at the format of the study, how can such case studies and analysis contribute to the larger telling of art history, do you think? I think that this case study gives significant insight into relevant exceptions or rules of art history. I personally really enjoyed it because it, rather than being a broad narrative, it gave you very specific information, which for me was a nice change after going through a bunch of 600-page uh, art history surveys. <laughs> and I, I think that it should be the very fabric that constitutes the larger frameworks that we work with in art history so that you can always you have this really vast big art history that we've talked about and then you can always apply lenses to it and smaller um, frameworks to it to find such valuable case studies like this. 
And I think the most significant contribution is that they really add the liveliness to art history because they make us grasp historical realities more by kind of putting us there and making us understand what the historical context was, what the political context was, and what the people that produced the art basically experienced. I think a case study like this captures this way better than a really broad narrative that really just washes over these individual experiences. In a broader context, what do you think, how does a more nuanced understanding of these cross-cultural exchanges that we've talked about, for example, with Picasso, but also here in the South American case, how does this affect our perception of art history in general and art in specific historical periods? For example, early colonialism. I think this was quite the telling example here. Well, I think it gives more agency to non-Western thematically neglected or colonized cultures rather than glossing over them with just the assumption that they were overrun or wiped out by foreign forces or just not relevant to Western culture, when in fact we know just how influential they really are. What is also important to note as well is that cultures are rare, rarely mutually exclusive, permanent or pure. They always borrow from one or lend to another. So our lesson from this whole study here is basically that the differences between times and places and styles and techniques and standards and influences are not as rigid as art historical classifications and periodization often suggest. So if we soften the borders of art history and start seeing its continuity and hybridity, that could allow us to better understand what unites cultures rather than what separates them. We would thus gain insight into the shared beliefs, concerns and value systems of our world's cultures, and we'd be able to make more balanced and systematic and relevant hypotheses about our own culture, but also about those that are more foreign to us. So we can say that art history, just like history, just does not have much explanatory power in isolation because it really flourishes in context. <laughs> So firstly, in studying periods and places within their own terms, this can help us uh, help us to understand these specific contexts better. But in an eye overly focused on detail and individuality, it is likely to be blind in face of larger schemes and shared understandings within art history. Furthermore, it might therefore be useful to expand one's lens to find communality, hybridity and continuity within world art history. So this increased awareness of what we can get from studying places in their own terms, but also what we might lose from doing that, can help us in the creation of a big art history. But as we discussed in episode one, and we'll keep discussing in the future, we do need to keep asking ourselves the question of what the worth and the assets, but also what the downsides of such a large-scale large narrative would be. So how should we approach the creation of a big art history? Is it beneficial for us even to approach culture separately as we did in this episode? Thank you for listening. Bye.